You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. That offers insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma and believes that nobody should have to read bad religious fiction. Today is week two of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, exploring chapters five, six, and seven of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this week we are diving deep into the truth of Narnia. Stick around. Glad you're here for the journey. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode two of the Religion and Fiction podcast, as well as week two of the Religion and Fiction book club. We have been diving into C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and today is about to get real because we are diving into the truth of Narnia, which in many ways is diving into the truth of our own world. And there's nobody better to take us on that journey than C.S. Lewis who himself went on his own religious journey from atheism to a believer of Jesus Christ. And chapters 5, 6, and 7 really begin to explore for these children, but also for us readers, the significance of our own belief. Chapter 5 opens with Lucy telling of her own experience of the adjacent world of Narnia. Of course, she faces skepticism and doubt from her family for her belief. Perhaps you yourself have experienced that same sort of skepticism, or maybe you've been a skeptic or a doubter toward people of faith or towards faith generally. Well, the professor in this story, who probably embodies Lewis himself, doesn't let the siblings of Lucy get away with their mockery and their skepticism. He asks him point blank, how do you know that your sister's story is not true? And he goes on that either your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she is telling the truth. This actually gets to an argument that Lewis made in another of his writings, Mere Christianity, in which he sort of put forth this liar lunatic paradigm that has really forced people to contend with the truth of Jesus Christ. He writes in this book on page 52, you can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In a very similar way, the children are forced to contend with not only the truth of Aslan, but also the truths of Narnia and really forces us to contend ourselves with our own world, the truths within it, particularly to not only the brokenness of our world and how it affects us, which we find in the person of Edmund, and in the course of the podcast, I share a bit of my own story that exploits the reality of those deep personal truths regarding our own brokenness and rebellion as actors on the stage of our own Narnia. But we also pivot to the hope that is found in the truth that is in our own world, which reflects the truth of Narnia encapsulated in this beautiful 
phrase spoken by one of the beavers. And that's this hope that Asland is on the move. Aslan is on the move. In the midst of all of the crazy in our own personal lives, as well as the global world, we can have hope that, like Aslan, Jesus Christ is also on the move. And that's what I love about this week, is that we get to begin confronting the truth of our own world by exploring the truth of Narnia. Thanks for joining. Stick around. And here is our episode. All right, uh, welcome to the second week of our virtual book club, Religion and Fiction Book Club, exploring the enchanting story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I hope that the first week was uh, enchanting as well as insightful into some of the more deeper and religious elements of C.S. Lewis's tale, and I really... I'm excited that you're back uh, for round two, week two, uh, diving into chapters five, six, and seven, carrying along uh, some of the other themes that we began in the first week, building on those and teasing out some uh, some of the insights that C.S. Lewis has into issues of faith, our own lives, uh, and everything in between, faith, life, Everything in between. That's really uh, what I hope to explore in the Religion and Fiction Book Club, because that's what stories themselves explore. They explore the the deeper things of life, usually uh, the kinds that I like to read anyway. And since you're one of my readers and a part of this book club, I'm assuming that you do too. On top of being entertained and enchanted uh, and thrilled along the way. So let's get to it. Round two, week two, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So chapter five opens with Lucy telling of her experience with the what I'm calling the adjacent world of Narnia. Let me just uh, read the opening here. So chapter five begins... Because the game of hide-and-seek was still going on, it took Edmund and Lucy some time to find the others. But when at last they were all together... Lucy burst out, Peter, Susan, it's all true. Edmund has seen it too. There is a country you can get to through the wardrobe. Edmund and I both got in. We met one another in there in the wood. Go on, Edmund, tell them all about it. Now, of course, Edmund has his own take uh, with the whole thing, and, and we'll get to that in a minute, too. But I I love how this opens with Lucy, the youngest child. Of course, last week we uh, kind of touched on this fact that Lewis's book, as well as many other fantasies that are similar to the Chronicles of Narnia series, all involve children, right? And we looked at why that might be and why children are so crucial to these sorts of stories and relating it to Jesus' own invitation to children to come and uh, follow him and and his invitation to uh, children at heart and all of us adults to come to him and his story with the same childlike faith. And so here is Lucy, the youngest child, exploring and uh, uh, sharing her own experience, her faith experience, if you will, with the, the fantastical, magical world of Narnia. And I think that this, uh, what happens here in chapter five can in many ways be compared to our own experiences with faith. Uh, when people disbelieve the truth of our own experiences with Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, because that's exactly what happens here, doesn't it? Peter turns to Ed 
uh, Edmund and, and he's like, what's all this about? What's going on? Of course, Edmund denies it all. And then, uh, you know, Peter and Lucy are, or excuse me, Peter and Susan are super skeptical of what Lucy's going on about basically writing her off as the silly little child who doesn't know what she's talking about, dreaming things up. And, you know, in many ways, I don't know about you, but that that's happened to me uh, when when I have sought to share my own experience of the adjacent world of the kingdom of heaven, of my own encounter with the story of Jesus, his life, death and resurrection. And uh, and others have been skeptical of what I long to share. You know, when you encounter the story of Jesus, his life, death and resurrection, and you realize that it is the truest story you've ever heard, that Jesus is who you've been waiting for your whole life, that life in his kingdom, God's kingdom, his reign, his rule, is far better than anything that this worldly kingdom has to offer. You can't do anything but what Lucy herself did, right? You want to share it with family and friends, to shout it from the rooftops, as Lucy did, it's all true. And of course, you know, no one believes Lucy, little Lucy, and Edmund treats her beastly, even though that he himself also experienced the truth of Narnia, which we'll we'll get to in a minute, but here we are, uh, poor Lucy, you know, she has this story, this true story, that she has experienced personally, uh, and she wants to share it, and yet nobody believes her. Of course, Peter says, of course it's all nonsense, right? Page 45. Uh, that's just the point. Lou was perfectly all right when we left home. But since we've been down here, she seems to be either going queer in the head or else turning into a most frightful liar. But whichever it is, what good do you think you'll do by jeering and nagging at her one day and encouraging her the next? He's talking to Edmund. But you can see it in Peter here that he completely doesn't believe in what Lucy is sharing, the truth of her experience. And and Susan and he both repeat these same doubts to the professor in just a few more pages when uh, they chat with him about Lucy's experience, uh, which is an interesting encounter we'll, we'll chat about in just a minute. But, you know, I wonder if you yourself have experienced the same sort of pushback in your own life from those around you uh, when you've tried to share the truth of your experience with Jesus and his kingdom, this adjacent world to our own in the same way that Lucy did. You know, I certainly have. At times, I wish that I had the same courage of Lucy to continue pushing and sharing this truth. Um, so if you have had those kinds of experiences, would be interested to hear in the comment section anything specific or your own thoughts about uh, being honest and courageous, as Lucy did, by, by sharing that it's all true, this experience of Jesus and his kingdom. In many ways, this isn't all that different than what the Bible says about how at times our friends and family will forsake us. Uh, Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 10, verses 21 through 22, that brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Look at the truth of that. You know, we will be hated 
will be disbelieved uh, to the point of hatred and even death by this radical encounter that we ourselves have had with Jesus and his story. And so we find a little bit of this in in Lucy, right, in chapter 5 and her sharing the story. And then in later, in chapter 6, Peter apologizes to Lucy for not believing her, right? Because then, of course, he himself uh, steps through the wardrobe into this adjacent world and he experiences the truth of this story, He experiences the truth of Narnia. But for now, there is the skepticism, and they talk to the professor about it. And and I love what he says on page 47. I don't know what page it is in your book, but 47 in mine. And, you know, they're explaining the story, uh, what Lucy is sharing with them, and uh, and how it just doesn't make sense. And uh, it just, it's ridiculous. And the professor ends up saying, well, how do you know? that your sister's story is not true. Man, that's a good line. How, how do you know? You know, you just, you've just written her off. Uh, you have decided that the truth that she is sharing from her own personal experience, her, her transformative experience with uh, this adjacent world of Narnia is, is nutso. She's lying about it or she's crazy. Well, how do you know? How do you know that it's not true? Perhaps some of you engaging this series, this this book club, uh, feel the same way as Peter and Susan do about the story of Jesus. You know, of course, it's all nonsense, as Peter says. Of course, a baby can't be born of a virgin, as the Christmas story insists. Of course, a man cannot rise from the dead, dying on the cross for the sins of the world, as the Easter story insists. And... Maybe you're a little like Peter or Susan in this story. You know, last week I, I shared that I've sort of related to Edmund and his his story. Uh, encountering the story of Narnia, the, the truth of Narnia, and then disbelieving it or denying it. And uh, struggling with um, the, the, the truth of that. Uh, and in some ways... Uh, Waffling back and forth, but ultimately finding um, a redemptive redemption in my own story, as Edmund does, and and then also the forgiveness of Aslan for that denial. Uh, but I wonder about you if maybe you encountering this club, this book club, might be a little bit of Peter or Susan wondering whether or not this is all true. But as the professor says. How do you know that your sister's story isn't true? How do you know that the story of the Gospels isn't true about Jesus and his love for you and for the world? Of course, the professor goes on in page 47, uh, and this is a very crucial part of the story, I think, um, and a crucial pivot because he he asks Peter and Susan, well, okay, either your sister is telling lies or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. Man, I love that. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. And of course, he goes on, you know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. 
Now, this is interesting in this story because it actually reflects an argument that C.S. Lewis, the author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, makes about Jesus himself in other writings. It's what I like to call his, or others have called actually, his liar, lunatic, lord paradigm. Some of you who are familiar with the works of C.S. Lewis also know that he wrote a very well-known and beloved book called uh, Mere Christianity. And in it, he talks about the choice that people must make regarding Jesus's identity and the story that is told about him, especially the story that he himself tells in regards to who he is and what he means for the world. This liar, lunatic lord paradigm comes to us in Mere Christianity on page 52, and I just want to read this a minute because it is so instructive. He, Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. He's talking about Jesus here. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, though, that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Man, I love what Lewis is saying here, and I love what he's doing uh, by sort of transporting that this, this teaching in uh, the Mere Christianity book into his story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, kind of embodying uh, the professor. Lewis is the professor talking with Peter and Susan about this reality that Lucy is either a lunatic on the same level of a man who calls himself a poached egg or a liar, like the devil himself, or not that she's Lord, but that she's speaking to a truth uh, that is deeper than what Peter and Susan can either believe or fully comprehend, just like Jesus was speaking about a truth about himself as God that was deeper and truer than what some people are ready to either believe or accept. And and so I wonder about you and your own relationship to Lucy here uh, and this sort of liar, lunatic Lord paradigm. Uh, Who do you yourself say that Jesus is? How have you responded to the truth of his story? As Lucy or Peter and Susan or even Edmund? Of course, Edmund does the exact opposite of Lucy, right? He has experienced the truth of Narnia and yet he denies it. Uh, It reminds me a bit about Peter, uh, maybe even a bit about Judas, uh, in the story of the Gospels, when uh, confronted about the association uh, of Peter, specifically with Jesus and his disciples, uh, right around the time of the crucifixion. And then he denies the truth of Jesus three times. 
Part of this is, of course, the nature of faith itself, right? Uh, And experiencing the fantastical. Uh, Sometimes we can't wrap our minds around this story that we've encountered, uh, the story of Jesus especially, which does sound rather fantastical. Again, virgin birth around Christmas is part of the story of Jesus that we tell in this season. And then come Easter, we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead and what that means for you, for me, for the world and our sins and relationship with God. That's hard to wrap our mind around. Yeah. But you know, there's also this uh, aspect at work in the story that Edmund was captivated by something other than the truth of Narnia, right? Uh, The magic of this adjacent world. And that's really embodied in the Turkish delight that he was offered by the witch that he that he gorged himself on, that he uh, stuffed his face with, right? And I found some pictures of the Turkish delight here. A lovely box with some ooey-gooey... Turkish delight, I guess. Uh, some filled with nuts there on the left. And then there are the, the, the pink delectable delights up at the top. And then some multicolored rainbow ones at the bottom, all covered in powdered sugar. Wow. Amazing. Sweet stuff. Literally made out of just pure sugar and cornstarch. And, uh, and, I, and of course, in the story, the Turkish delight is, is the symbol representing... Um, this power that is held over Edmund in particular, but comes out of the magic of the Wicked Witch, or the White Witch in this story, I should say. I'm channeling uh, another story, the Wicked Witch of the West, right? But uh, back to this story, the White Witch, and her power over the world that's channeled through uh, offering uh, the, the, the Turkish delight to Edmund to sort of tempt him, to captivate him, to draw him in to her power. And uh, 36 through 37 is where we first encounter the Turkish delight. I just want to read this because it's uh, interesting in the way that it's described. So, of course, the queen comes to Edmund, this son of Adam, and says, what would you like best to eat? Turkish delight, he says. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when open, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. He was quite warm now and very comfortable. And then we learn on page 38 that anyone who had once tasted this Turkish delight would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, to go on eating it until they killed themselves. But she did not offer him any more. Instead, she said to him, Son of Adam, will you bring them to me? Of course, uh, she's talking about his brothers and sisters. And so she uses this to to draw him in, to tempt him, to captivate him. And then on page 59, a little bit later, uh, the Wicked Witch offers this uh, power to Edmund himself to win him over to her side. Uh, It's part of her magic, the enchantment over the whole country so that it is always winter here and never Christmas. This on page 59. So she uses this magic in this sort of way to specifically target Edmund in his weak spot, right? To draw him in to her service. She uses it to tempt him. So the Turkish delight in many ways is the symbol of sin. 
and the power of sin in the world uh, that has its hold over us. And then look at later in our week's reading, the, the, the reading, reading of week five here at the beginning. We see that Edmund is feeling sick and sulky and annoyed after coming off from this Turkish delight and coming back into this, uh, the real, his real world. He becomes a nastier person every minute, the story says. And, uh, Peter says that he's always liked being beastly, but it also seems that this beast is coming out in greater measure after being tempted and gorging himself on the Turkish delight. And then in chapter seven, towards the end, we read that uh, Edmund thought about Turkish delight and about being a king and horrible ideas came into his head. So here is Edmund. There is this uh, magic that holds power over him that the Turkish delight is sort of symbolic over. It both tempts him into these acts and this attitude, but we also learn that it seems to stoke the actions and attitudes that were already there inside of him. And I couldn't help but think about James 1, the book of James, chapter 1, uh, that speaks about this sort of power over our lives, the power of sin, the, the, the power that the devil has over us in this world. James 1 says that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Wow, we see that right here in Edmund's life, don't we? In this story. And I don't know about you, but I know I've seen this at work in my own story, in my own life. The, the effect of Turkish delight. Uh, the, the thing, the, the things that seem to draw me in, that have power and sway over me and my heart my mind that sort of uh, entice me into these actions and attitudes, uh, grabbing hold of these inner desires and dragging me away into sin. And I wonder about you, how you have experienced the truth of Turkish delight. You know, for me, it has been money and things and uh, envy over what other people have or what jealousy about what others have that I don't have. And there was this time uh, during college and then right afterwards when I uh, experienced the the full, uh, when I reaped the full reward uh, after college from being tempted during college to obsess over clothing and having stuff and things and my image and would spend a whole lot of money that I didn't have uh, buying things and going out to dinner and uh, entertaining myself, all of it, uh, mostly credit cards, because I was because my Turkish delight, the things, the thing that held sway over me was image and money and things and stuff. And uh, and so for four years during college, racked up credit card debt because uh, of uh, my sin of envy and jealousy and. Uh, being sort of obsessed with bowing down to uh, the God mammon that Jesus speaks of, right? Money, of course, in uh, his Sermon on the Mount, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. And there was a part of my heart during college that was definitely serving the God of money. And after graduating, 
graduated not only with a degree, but also around $12,000 in credit card debt because of uh, the way that Turkish delight had sway over me and my heart. And uh, so I, you know, again, that's why I kind of speak to Edmund as uh, the one in the story that I sort of identify with, because I have been there. I've done that. I understand what Turkish delight is and what it can do to the heart and to the mind. Uh, and uh, anyone else want to share? Go ahead. <laughs> open comments, open mic. Um, but seriously, though, I'd love to be interested if you uh, yourself have had experiences with the power of sin and temptation that Edmund had uh, here in this story with Turkish delight serving as that symbol of the power that this world has over us and what it does to our heart and mind, especially with relationships and other people, right? Because you see this play out with Lucy and others in the life of Edmund. Of course, Turkish delight is only part of a broader magic that holds sway over Nardia. As I read before in page 59, it is part of the enchantment over the whole country so that it is always winter here and never Christmas. But, and this is the, the beauty of not only the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but also our own story. It's not the end of the story. This power that holds sway over the country from the White Witch, symbolized in the Turkish delight, uh, we learn in chapter 7 that Aslan is on the move, don't we? A power that is greater than the White Witch is on the move. And this is not only true of the story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it is also true of our own stories, the human story. Yes, there is this dark magic that holds power over us in the world. We call that sin, right? Uh, the reality that the world is broken and busted, that we ourselves are broken and busted, that we are rebels against a holy God in desperate need of rescue. It's always winter, never Christmas, right? We talked about that last week and how 2020 is like a perfect illustration of this reality that there is this power messing with the world, messing with our own lives. And yet, our rebellion against God, which plunged the world and ourselves into chaos and confusion and death, this does not have the final word in our story. No, because Aslan is on the move. God moved in our own story, right? To rescue and recreate the world through Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived the life we should have lived that we could not because of sin and our rebellion. He died the death that we ourselves should have died as a consequence, as a wage for our sin, defeating death, defeating the dark magic of sin through his resurrection. This is what Jesus did, moving in the world in the story of the world and in our own stories as well. And we'll get to that more later, but I want to share, I want, I want to read from uh, page 67 and 68, because this, uh, this is how I want to end this week. Uh, we end here, I think it's chapter seven with this wonderful, beautiful uh, broadcast, right? From the beaver. They say that Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. 
Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, remember that phrase, the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you could... And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Man, love that. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside of them. Now, it's interesting to see how each of the four experienced this name in different ways. For Peter... It was bravery and adventure. Susan, uh, it was delight, like the most beautiful of music that she had heard just sort of floating over her. Lucy felt it was like Christmas, waking up to the presents, to the joy and the hope and the expectation of the holiday. But look at Edmund. He felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Interesting. I wonder why that might be. I'd love to hear, uh, actually, in the comments, uh, your interaction. I'm not going to give it away myself and my own thoughts, but I'd love to hear why you think each of them experienced the name of Aslan in this way, in their own particular way. Because I find that interesting, and I think that this is uh, sort of an example and symbolic of how people experience the name of Jesus in the same way, in very different ways, depending on where they are and, and who they are in relationship to that name and to that story. Because, of course, the Bible speaks of a power in Jesus' name as well. John 18, when the mob came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion, uh, Jesus stepped forward and asked, who are you looking for? They came with clubs and swords and torches, uh, literally the mob coming down to arrest Jesus. And here he is saying, who are you looking for? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. He replied, I am he. I am that one. And the moment that Jesus spoke those words, I am he, the mob fell backwards to the ground because of him speaking the truth of who he was. They knew he knew who they were looking for, the, the one who claimed to be God. And he expressed that I am that one. And they fell over backwards. They were bowled over, right? I love that. And, of course, Philippians 2 reminds us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And I wonder about your own relationship to the story of Aslan, to the name of Aslan, to the story of Jesus, the name of Jesus, and the way that each of these four children had a relationship and a reaction to that name. 
What is your own relationship and reaction to that name? How, how does, what does Jesus mean to you? What does that name and all that he means, who he is, his love for you, what he did for you, dying on the cross, resurrecting to give you new life and a hope and a future home with him on a new earth. What does that mean to you? What is your reaction to that? And if you'd like, you could share that in the comments or send me an email and let me know. Uh, Jeremy at jabauma.com. We'd love to hear about your own experience with that name, that story. Uh, like Lucy experienced that story, like Edmund and like Peter and Susan themselves eventually do. Now, next week, we will meet uh, this Aslan. We will discover more about who he is and what he means for this adjacent world of Narnia. Uh, but for now, I'd love you to just kind of noodle over your relationship to that name and your relationship to that story. And if you will, share that in the comments. All right, that wraps up week two in our virtual religion and fiction book club. Van, glad you're here. Thanks for joining. Uh, if you have any thoughts or comments about the week's reading that I didn't cover myself, uh, feel free to put that down in the comments, things you notice, thoughts, themes that I didn't cover. And next week, we'll explore the enchanting story of uh, chapters 8 through 11 and explore some more of the deeper themes of those chapters. But for now, thanks for joining this week. Hope you have a great week next week, and we'll see you then. Thanks so much for joining our adventure through Narnia, exploring the intersection of the sacred and story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Next week, we get to the heart of the book, chapters 8 through 11. Do leave a comment and find episode show notes down below. And be sure to join our weekly newsletter full of religion and fiction insights. See you next Wednesday. Until then, happy reading.